I want to start uh, first by looking at Wikipedia, the essence of all knowledge. So uh, it's like, do you, do you believe, you know, everything that's on there? I don't know. There's lots of things on there. But um, since I like astronomy and, and read books on astronomy every once in a while, uh, and when I was looking at this passage, and when you look at a passage, you're thinking, what's the main motif? What's he talking about? And then, and then how do I uh, come up with a metaphor that expresses that to somebody? And for me, uh, 148 uh, directly relates to stars, pul pulsating stars. Uh, stars, we would call them just as you were telling a child, they like twinkle. Uh, but they're really pulsating. And there's uh, two different kinds of pulsating stars. Did you know this? No, I, I didn't. Um, so there are, there are uh, and I don't know who thinks this stuff up, but there are intrinsic and extrinsic pulsating stars. So what is the difference between the two? Thinking minds got to know, right? Thank you for following me. So uh, an intrinsic variable star uh, is a star where the variability is being caused by changes in the physical properties of the stars themselves. And there, then there's three subcategories of that. This person must live in D.C. Uh, so there's an intrinsic star that has all kinds of things going on and it makes it, you know, pulsate, you know, uh, it, with light. There's also the extrinsic variable star uh, that it states here. Th these are stars where the variability in the light is caused by an external property. So uh, it could be like uh, as, the, as uh, two stars like pass, look like they pass each other, they look like they get brighter, but they really don't. So uh, there's two types of those. What, what in the world has that got to do with anything or some... 148. Well, I would say it has a lot to do with it because if you go back to the book of uh, Daniel, uh, chapter 12, verse 3, here's what Daniel says at the close of his book. He says, and those, speaking of believers, uh, who have insight will shine uh, like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Uh, you're going to be able to see when we get into God's presence who really led people to Christ. I mean, how? Well, by how much they're glowing. I mean, think of Billy Graham. Probably can't even look at the guy, right? I mean, you just, you know, and that's what Daniel says. In, the, in, in heaven, in God's domain, you're going to reflect his glory uh, like Moses did when he came down from the mountain. He had to cover his face. Uh, but it's going to be, uh, you're, we're all going to have that brightness of the glory of Christ. But some are going to uh, pulsate brighter just by definition of how many people they let into the kingdom. Amazing, isn't it? So what is that, what's pulsating stars have to do with uh, theology? Everything. Because they're just a mere illustration when you look up. That's going to be you one day when you stand before God. Imagine how, how that will look. When, uh, you, when I look at Psalm 148, 148 is about pulsate, pulsation. It's about pulsating praise, that praise comes and goes. Uh, and what you find here, the main motif is about believers living a life where praise pulsates. Uh, and when you take this uh, particular passage and you break it down as you have to do when you speak, uh, what's the structure of it? How do you put, put this argument together? Uh, there are what I would call... An, Form criticism would, would tell you there's, there's three panels here of movement, and there's much symmetry in this. So this was well thought out. So what you're going to find in these various panels, there's three of them. We'll cover panel one this morning about pulsating praise. Uh, panel one uh, says, praise God for his compassion and his character when you, when you praise him. So you're going to find a call to praise, which is an imperative. It's a command, not a suggestion. So all believers are called uh, by God. It's their duty to step forward and praise God for those two things. Those are then followed by statements of causation. So if I'm, gonna, I'm called to praise God, well, then, then what are the causes of that? Exactly what would I be praising him for? So that's verses 1 to 6. When you get to panel 2, which we'll cover next week, uh, you get uh, the same motif. You praise God for uh, his focus, that he focuses on you, uh, and on his favor that he shows towards you. So again, there's a call to praise. It's an imperative. It's not a suggestion, followed by causation. So I'm called to praise God. What are the reasons? 
And then panel three, same kind of structure with one little difference that I'll show you. So you have here, you have uh, the, em the emphasis is on praising God for his involvement in your life and his insight that he shares with you. Uh, so again, call to praise, uh, is it a suggestion? No, it's an imperative. Uh, and it's, uh, it's followed by causation, uh, verses 13 to 20. What are the reasons? And then he circles back around and he ends in a call to praise, which is another imperative in the Hebrew text. So he's going to end the same way that he started with an imperative. You as a believer, if you want to live a life that's maturing, step into praise. And I, I told you this last week, I wouldn't expect you to remember this week. It's been seven days. Uh, but when you begin and you end the same way, it is called inclusio. I-N-C-L-U-S-I-O. That's the kind of figure of speech that it is. Uh, I know it's early to be studying grammar and rhetoric and stuff like that, but isn't it enjoyable? I think it is. Thank you for supporting me. So, yeah. But why is he putting that in there? Because he knows that we have hard heads, and we don't sometimes get it the first time around. So what's he telling you? Do not forget you're supposed to live a life of praise, and it's a command. And he begins and ends with that. And so uh, when you look at these panels, since they start with an imperative, and then they go to causation, they're all symmetrically the same way. That, to me, speaks of pulsation. That's, when I think about God, and, and as I see things that, that are amazing, uh, whether I'm in an airplane looking at beautiful cloud formations, or I'm at the beach looking at the, the mighty water as I was when I did a wedding down at West Palm Beach a couple months ago. I'm up early one morning walking on the beach by myself, just thanking God for it. This is amazing. It's not California, but this is amazing. Uh, praising God for just how beautiful the beach is. Um, that is a pulsation of praise because it would be hard to have continual praise because you have a life, right? I mean, you couldn't do it 24-7. And so he's going to tell you here in this passage how to pulsate in praise. So we're just going to look at that one panel. As you think about your life pulsating with praise on and off throughout a given day, we want to look at motif number one. You praise God for two things about him. He's a compassionate God, and he's a God that has an amazing character. And so we want to we look at that. Before he, he jumps into looking at that, uh, he gives us the command uh, in verse 1. Uh, it's pretty, pretty short and to the point with an exclamation point. If you are a believer in the living God, what were you created for? That's what you were created for, that you would praise the Lord. Hallelujah is what he says there. Um, and so this particular uh, praise, and we'll get into the grammar because grammar is so important at this point, because this is a participle in, in Hebrew to praise the Lord. Uh, now, I have two options in translating the participle, basically, that makes sense. It can either be an iterative use of the participle or a durative sense of the participle. What's the difference? If it's durative, it means I do this all the time. If it's iterative, it means, well, it comes and goes. So when you look at your life and God's given you a command to praise him, which do you think is a better grammatical option, item one or two? Two, because, as I told you, you have a life. There's absolutely no way you could praise God constantly because of all the demands on your, on your life. So um, what he's telling you is, uh, when you think about God and see things that he's doing in your life, uh, you are under divine command to stop and do what? Praise God. Praise him. Uh, now, we want to get into the causation. What are the causes for that praise about God's character and compassion? So in verse 1, uh, the, the latter part of it, he says, uh, when I think about praising God, my summation is, it's good. It's really good to sing praises to our God. Then he's going to give you two prepositional phrases, starting with the word for. I know it's early to head into grammar, but this is a great way to wake you up. Because prepositions are important, right? Because they're inspired of God. So he's telling you, it's good to, good to praise our God. And he's going to give you two logical reasons why that's a really great idea. Number one, it is what? Well, it's, 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 present, it's pra praises 
pleasant and his praise is becoming. So when you think about praising God, it's good to do it, and then it's also pleasant, uh, and it's becoming of a Christian when they do this. Uh, let's, let's drill down on what he, what he says there. Why is praise good? If you live a life of praise, uh, there's many ideas. Uh, I only have 30 minutes to give the, uh, things to you, so I can I only give you two. Two reasons why it's great to praise God. Number one, praise shows you're being obedient to his command. What was the command? Praise God. So if you hear the command, you know what it is today, he's going to hold you accountable to that. When you leave today and you walk out, you should be thinking, man, I got, I got to get into more praise. Uh, less analysis, less criticism, less, uh, you know, I'm, I'm depressed, but more, I know I got to focus on God. Number two, praise is the natural activity of a maturing Christian. So how do you know you're maturing in the faith? Praise God, no matter what, you praise God. And, and uh, when you look at the, the, the rest of what he says here, and, and, and by the way, um, he said it's, it's good to sing praises to God. Je- Jesus himself said in John 14, 16, or 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. So if you love him, you keep his commandments. What's his commandment? Hallelujah. It's a command in Hebrew. What is the command? Praise me. Uh, and so he says, if you do that, you're doing what a Christian is supposed to do. And that's how a Christian matures. He also says, he uses some adjective here, adjectives to describe the praise. He says, if you praise God, it's pleasant. It's, it's pleasant. Uh, this uh, particular word uh, is used in Psalm 81, verse 3, of uh, sweet-sounding harp. You know, I'm, I'm sure you've heard a harp. You hear it, uh, you know, at my last church, we knew a harpist. We used to uh, hire her to come to uh, uh, Christmas functions and play and it's just in the background, it's better than a Stratocaster, isn't it? I mean, yeah, uh, electric guitar is what I'm talking about. So it's soothing to hear the harps, almost like you're, you know, you're near an angel or something. Uh, and so it's just, you know, he's true. It's like when, when God hears you praise, what does he do? He, he listens to it and he was like, oh, that's just, that's like David on a harp. I enjoy that. That's how God looks at it. Then he also says that praise is becoming, and this is instructive because it's not used, this particular word is not used very often in the Old Testament. Uh, it's used uh, many times in the Song of Solomon, of all places. Why? Because when you think about Solomon and the Shunammite woman, his, his girlfriend and his wife, when you think about that relationship, and Solomon is speaking about how to, how to love a woman, he's telling you here that, husbands, are you listening to me? You should be. This is, was for me earlier in the week, now it's for you. He says, when you tell your wife that she's lovely and you love her because she's lovely, this is becoming. It's becoming. It's becoming. It's, it's, the, it's the right thing to do, right? So I've been married 41 years. I mean, you could easily say, well, I've told her that a whole bunch of times. Is that going to work for me? Probably. She's not here right now, so we can talk about her. But, um, I mean, just, but, but I have to think about it as a man who's in love with a woman. How do I keep the flame of love going? Well, I, well, I tell her I, that I love her. And I tell her why I love her. And sometimes I just shock her and tell her, you know, when she's not even thinking about it. And then that earns her respect for me, and then she loves me. And then it's that cycle of breathing life into your marriage. Anyway, uh, move on, too convicting. Men, uh, what are you supposed to be doing? Well, praising God, because it's like when you praise your wife, when you praise your wife. Uh, and so he says, think about these things as you praise God. And then he's going to get into the actual causation of, like, what are the reasons for praising God? Number two. He says that, well, number one, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcast of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds. So you can see his character here. He's going to talk about God's character, uh, like what he is like, and he's going to talk about his compassion. Some of these verses, they kind of intertwine. We'll separate them out, just talk about God's 
character and also talk about his compassion. So here he's talking about uh, the Lord, L-O-R-D, and we talked about this in great detail last week. Capital L-O-R-D speaks of God as Yahweh, the great I am. So he has already talked about, uh, in verse 1, praise our God, Elohim, that's the creator, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God, Elohim, created the heavens. Here he's talking about, he's switching from God to creator, praise him as a creator, to now praise God who's the covenant God. Because he is the L-O-R-D, the always existent one. He's always going to be there for you. So he says he builds up Jerusalem, which tells you this was probably written post-exile. When the Babylonians had destroyed uh, Jerusalem in three waves, three de deportations, finally leveled the city in 586 B.C., uh, they went into captivity for 70 years. And when they were released and they went back under, you know, Nehemiah and et cetera, and rebuilt the city, rebuilt the temple, uh, it was really God working through them. But he says we praise God because God's the kind of God who never deserts his people. He's Yahweh. He's the eternal one. Uh, and he's always about building his people up, not blasting them, but building them up. So uh, verse 2, probably written uh, after the captivity uh, when they went back and rebuilt, uh, started rebuilding Jerusalem because their lives had been destroyed. Now, why were they in captivity? Well, because they had been disobedient to not listen to the prophets for hundreds of years. And God said to his people, I will discipline you, and I will send you into captivity. Same motif, when we sin, the Lord moves. It says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, in, in Hebrews 12. So when you sin, God as your father comes alongside you and says, I must discipline you. But at the same time, he's always thinking, well, I have to discipline them so that they mature in the faith, and they've sinned so they don't do this anymore. But I'm also the God who builds them up. They're always the time when God comes back around and, and builds you up. Uh, and it's a participle. That's important. It says he builds up. So you, again, I, I tell you, you have two options. Do you remember what I talked about earlier? You have two options. It's either an iterative use of the participle or a durative use of the participle. So does this mean that God continually builds you up or he iteratively does it occasionally as he sees you fall, you get disciplined, and he has to pick you back up? I'd say it's the latter one because that is what happens in our walks. When we fall, and we do, is anybody here without sin as a Christian? Nobody? Yeah, because you fall. And the Lord comes along and he says, okay, I, I must discipline you because I love you, but I want you to be better. And then I'm going to do things to build your life up. See, the devil just blasts. You know, you, and you can always tell the difference between the voice of the devil and the voice of the Spirit of God because the Spirit of, uh, of the devil, he just, he just condemns you. But, but the voice of the Spirit convicts you and then leads you to greater things. Totally different. So God is the one, based on that participle, who's always in a state of moving you toward being built. I mean, think about Israel. Um, Isaiah chapter 1, uh, he, he brings them into his God, brings Israel into his courtroom, and castigates them for their sin as a nation. And it's a heavy-duty passage as they're in his courtroom. But notice how the passage winds to a conclusion in verse 24. He says, Therefore the Lord of hosts, uh, the mighty one of Israel, uh, declares, Ah, uh, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also return my hand against you and will smelt away the dross as the light. He'll burn the sin out of your life is what he's saying. And I will remove all of your alloy, those imperfections in your life. That's what he's doing as he disciplines you. Then I will restore, notice, see the building? I will restore your judge, judges at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. And after that, you'll be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city, Zion, code word for Jerusalem. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. He's, he's pointing to the kingdom. And he said, I'm going I'm to deal with your sin, and I want to burn that sin out of your life so I can build you into a great person. That's what God's doing in your life right now if you know him. 
Uh, and he, he, here he's giving you a taste of the eschatological end when the Messiah returns. That's going to be chapter 2 of Isaiah. When he returns and dwells among us. Amazing day. So he said, I'm, I'm always in a state of moving to greater things in your life. What will the devil do? The devil will come to you and tell you, God's done with you. He's tired of you. This is the final sin. It, 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 you know, it, that's the devil. What's the spirit of God say? That is sin. You need to repent. And I love you and I'm going to move you to greater things. Aren't you glad for participles? <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, because God, uh, he, does, he does rebuild us. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago uh, when, when Peter uh, denied, the, denied the Lord. Jesus told him, you're going to deny me three times. What did Peter say? Not on my watch. What did he do? He did it three times. Do you know the man? Never seen him three times. When Jesus finally is resurrected and it comes to him, we, we know the story. Ask him three times, do you love me? Uh, and then the last time he's like, Lord, you know, you know I love you. And then he t- gives him the command uh, in John 21, 17. Well, then Peter, you go feed my sheep. See, he takes broken, dysfunctional saints, children who wonder, and he's the God who builds. Because uh, that's just what he's like. It also says that he's the God who gathers. That's what it says. He gathers the outcast of Israel. Uh, now, this is um, not a participle. This is an imperfect. And an imperfect tense here means that it's a, it's a habitual uh, classification of that particular kind of verb, which means... Um, this is how God rolls constantly. He's constantly looking to gather his people when they stray. So when you stray, whether it's unknowingly or knowingly, what does God do? He comes alongside you to, to bring you back into the fold as the good shepherd would. would. That's why he calls you uh, an outcast. Because that's a particular word that was used in, like in Isaiah 56, verse 8, Jeremiah 49, 36, of Jewish exiles. They sinned. They rejected the word of the prophet, didn't obey the law of God, and God said, I will discipline you, send you into captivity. You will be an outcast there, but I will not forget you while you're there. That's God. God's always looking to redeem his people and to return them to the land. So how does that apply to the New Testament age, since we're not Israel anymore? We're the church. Uh, same God who uh, faithfully reclaimed his people, uh, as we saw in, in verse 3, uh, by healing their broken hearts from the captivity they lost everything. This is the same God today when we sin. So when you sin, it's the same God who's there to build and to bring you back in as an outcast. So if you committed an, an unthinkable sin in your mind, you cannot believe you did it, shocked by what you did, now that you, you're convicted and you look back, what is God doing? He will discipline you because he loves you. He will then move you to a place where he can build back into your life and take you, the outcast, and bring you back into the fold of God. That is, what, that is how God rolls because that's what he did for Israel. There's more reasons I want to look at as we look at the passage, verses 4 to 5. He says, when I think about reasons of why you would want to praise God in a pulsating manner, he says, he counts the number of the stars, he gives names to all of them, great is the Lord, and abundant in strength. His understanding is, well, off the charts. His understanding is infinite. Uh, This is amazing. I mean, because he's talking about God's character here, of what kind of God that he is. We talked about this last week, um, about... uh, God and, and, and his, his omniscience, because his, he's going to talk about God's omniscience here and his omnipotence. So God does possess all power, omni meaning all power, uh, omniscience and all, all knowledge, omniscience and omnipotence. So Wayne Grudem, um, we read him, uh, I think it was last week, we need to return to Grudem because he has more to say about the omniscience of God. Here's what he says. God knows all things actual and possible. Uh, This means all things that exist, all things that happen, all things that might happen, he knows them. Uh, God's knowledge of all things actual applies to the entire creation, 
For God is the one before whom uh, no creature is hidden, but all are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do, according to Hebrews 4.13. He says, God also knows all things possible, including the events that might happen, but do not actually come to pass. He says, our definition of God's knowledge speaks of God knowing everything in one simple act, meaning at any one given time, he knows all things. Uh, it says, uh, here the word uh, simple is used in the sense not divided into parts. Uh, this means that God is fully aware of everything. He always knows all things at once. He does not have to reason or to conclusions or ponder carefully before his answers. He knows the end from the beginning. He never learns or forgets anything. Every bit of God's knowledge, Grudem says, is always fully present in his consciousness. That's, that's comforting, and that's also scary <laughs> because he never forgets anything, and it's total precision because he has absolute knowledge. The psalmist says he counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. And what leads to some questions, like, mm, how many stars are there? <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's pretty funny because as I've read some, you know, guys with PhDs and whatever, and I've looked at some of their websites, and it's usually a whole lot of math equations and stuff. I don't know what they're talking about. And I, I you know, I, I, I got to go to you know, astronomy for dummies. Type in, you know, I don't need the theorems and everything. And one guy just broke it down to say, if you want to count the stars like in the Milky Way galaxy, well, then you, it's like if you go to the beach and you, uh, you know, cordon off an area of sand, and then you literally counted how many, you know, grains of sand were in that little quadrant, you know, uh, height, breadth, etc. And then you could look at the length of the beach, and then calculate, you can have some kind of idea how many grains of sand are there. So he says, you can apply that to the cosmos uh, and, and kind of figure out how many particular stars there were at any given time. So um, when you think about uh, the Hubble Space Telescope uh, and what it has seen, they estimate that it has, that it is, it has photo, and you can see some of them here, that it has photographed an estimated 100 million galaxies. It's shocking. 100 million. And there's no one, as far as we know, on them. We're, we're alone. 100 million ga galaxies. And this one uh, website I went to said, based on uh, increasing lens uh, capabilities with our telescopes, they're estimating that this could go up as high as 200 million galaxies. And there's no one there. There's just us on this little blue planet. And God hung all that expanse out there, and he, and he did it by his greatness. It says he counts the number of the stars. So if you think about the, the numbers of the stars, there are billions and billions and billions of stars, even in our own little galaxy. But if you were to walk up to God, I don't know what your questions are when you first see him. Do you have a list? God, I got to know. I got to know. Like, uh, you know, uh, if you were to walk up to him at any given time and say, I want to know precisely in the entire known cosmos how many stars there are, he can tell you with total precision and not be off by one. And then what is most mind-boggling is it says here uh, in verse 4, he gives names to all of them. You have to think of yourself. Would you run out of names? I'm just saying. I mean, if you had to give names to billions and billions and billions of stars hanging in the vacuum of space, did I, did I, did I name that one? You know, did I, well, it seems like that one looks kind of similar. Like, the, did, I, did I already do that? No, God knows exactly what he did. Uh, and he knows every single one. So you could stop on any place in the entire cosmos and ask God not only how many stars are there, but uh, what's that one's name? And he could tell you, well, that one's, you know, that's, that's Harry, you know. <laughs> so none of those heavy-duty Latin names. Like, who thinks that stuff up? Um, he could tell you, what, you know, all the names. Now, what does this mean to you when you're thinking about praising God? A lot. 
If he has that kind of omniscient knowledge of the cosmos, what does it mean to you who are who, the crown of his creation? You see what I mean? And you think, well, woe is me. You know, my life's going downhill. You know, so much is arrayed against me. I don't feel like, you know, God's really working in my life and all the stuff. That's the devil. And the Lord's saying, oh, no. No, I, I have total knowledge of your life. Because I have total knowledge of your life, I will act based on that knowledge and do great things. He knows everything about you. You know, I spend a lot of time in counseling people and they, they can deceive me. They can deceive themselves. They cannot tell me all the facts. And it might take, you know, several sessions to get to the facts, etc. God just looks at them and goes, now you don't need a counselor. I know all that info. See, he knows all these things. So he knows your joys and your sorrows, your fears and your anxieties, your past, your present, your future in toto. He knows it all instantly. That's amazing. He knows you. And Jesus said in John 10, that he's the creator, by the way, Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says so. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own. And he says, in my own, they know me. So this is amazing. I mean, Jesus says, yeah, I know you. Think about it. He is so busy. You try to get on the, just try and get on the, the uh, get an appointment with somebody super famous, important. I mean, anybody. I mean, I could pick any Fortune 500 company, call them up and tell them, hey, I need, I would like an appointment with the CEO. Are they going to call me? Eh, probably not. And God's like, no, my door is always open to you as a child. That's mind-boggling. And, he, and his knowledge is totally infinite. He also says, um, great is the Lord, and he's abundant in strength, and his understanding is infinite. So his strength. So we're talking about the character of God that we praise him for. He's omniscient, knows all things. So he's got your life under wraps because he's watching what's going on, uh, and he will actively help you. And then he he's also has strength that's abundant. I mean, it, it's unlimited. Uh, Dr. Norman Geisler, uh, before he passed away, uh, wrote a book, uh, well, several volumes, uh, on systematic theology. It's a great read. It's not short. I mean, it's a couple thousand pages, but it's, but it's an excellent read. Um, here's what he says about uh, this omnipotence of God. He says, theologically, uh, omnipotent means that God can do whatever is possible to do, or God can do what is not impossible to do. His power is unlimited and uninhibited by anything else. Negatively, he says, omnipotence does not mean that God can do what is contradictory. He says the scriptures affirm that God cannot contradict his nature. So he can't do something evil, but all other things he can do. Furthermore, omnipotence, he says, does not mean that God must do all that he can do. It simply means that he has the power to do whatever is possible, even if he chooses not to do some things. He has total power to pull things off. And you're worried about your life? God, who has total omniscience of your life and knows all about it from the beginning to the end, has the power to then step into your life and guide it to the, the place that he wants it to be. It's amazing. Uh, think about Daniel. How did his life go? Great or south? Probably south. Taken by the Babylonians, uh, probably in the second wave of deportations, probably around 605, 606 B.C., He's, in, he's, he's one of the intelligentsia of the nation. Up and coming, you know, academic mind, they take them, cream of the crop, take them to ba ba Babylon. They begin to immediately try to indoctrinate them. And what's he do as a young man? I'm not eating food offered to idols. I mean, so at the very beginning of his captivity, things, things did not go well. Uh, so he's held into captivity. He was then opposed by older, wiser uh, 
men uh, that were part of the king's soothsaying crew. Uh, they didn't like him because he actually had keen insight from the living God. They eventually threw him into a lion's den because he wouldn't bend the knee to the king and do what the king wanted to do. So they got him canceled, throw him in there. But then God stepped in and the lions just for some reason weren't hungry that day. And then they pull the open, you know, the, the, the covering off the, of the den and they, he's just sitting in there having a great old time with them. Uh, but, but then all of a sudden, you know, the, the Babylonians, the greatest power on the planet, are overrun by the, the Persians under Cyrus, king of Persia, 539 B.C., wiped them out in a blitzkrieg fashion on one drunken evening party, read the book of Daniel, and then there's old man Daniel in his 80s. Well, I guess I lost my job, uh, but hey, it's a new invasion army, great. And they, they eventually choose him to be part of our political machine. It's unbelievable. Well, how did all that happen? Well, because uh, great is the Lord, and he's abundant in strength. And his understanding is infinite. So what are you thinking about your life? God's like, oh no, I work in that kind of stuff to do great things with you. So think about your life. Are you considering retirement? And it seems scary. Did I save enough? Uh, the stock market did not do well this week, did it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if your you know, income's tied to that, it's like, well, uh, you know, you're probably not going out to dinner this week. So you, you're approaching retirement. You, you don't think God knows that? He absolutely does. He has infinite knowledge. Uh, and he can come alongside you and help you. Uh, you, you. I had a special needs child uh, who's now a man. I understand what that means to have a special needs child. How am I going to do this? How are we going to raise this child? How, what, how can we? It's difficult. Yeah, absolutely. What does God say? No, no. Uh, this is all part of my plan for your life. That child will shape and hone you into my image, and I will give you the, the strength and the power to navigate forward. Uh, you, maybe you had a personal loss. Be lost a business, lost somebody that you love. God knows that. He knows your heart because he's omniscient, but then he's all-powerful. So whatever your situation is, uh, God says, uh, no, I'm the good shepherd. Uh, and praise me because well, I am great because I use my strength to benefit you. Then in verse 6, the last verse, he wraps it up by saying, notice the compassion of God. He could be totally busy with running the cosmos. And what does it say? The Lord, Yahweh, the eternal one, supports who? The afflicted. And then notice on the other, that's the positive side. On the negative side, he uses his holiness to do what? To bring down the wicked. Uh, now, if you look at your life, it's like, wow, it seems like the wicked are advancing and no one's stopping them. Nah, not with God. God says they're delusional. I'm behind the scenes working for the big day when I reveal myself. And while the wicked are afflicting my people who stand for truth, morality, holiness, all that is wholesome and good, etc. As they're afflicting them, I see that. And I'm working in you know, all situations, geopolitical and otherwise, uh, to bring them down to the ground. And it will happen when I appear. But in the meantime, if you're afflicted for your faith, what does God say? I support you occasionally. No. He says, I support the, the, those who uh, love me. Again, this is a participle. You have two options. You should know by now what your options are. Participle, iterative, durative. So what does this mean? The Lord supports you occasionally or the Lord supports you constantly? Which one would you think theologically is the better choice? Probably constantly because we face evil and sin constantly. We wrestle against not flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, Ephesians 6. So God has to come alongside and he has to support you because it's tough, it's not simple. He says, I, I, I support the afflicted. The word afflicted uh, is used throughout the Old Testament, this particular uh, Hebrew word. It's called anav. Uh, it's used of the poor, people that don't have a lot. 
And the Lord says, I look down on people that don't have a lot, and I come alongside them to, to help them. Uh, it's also translated in the King James and in the New International Version in our passage. Uh, he supports the, the meek or the humble, because that's another nuance of the word. If you are a humble person and, and um, you are a meek person, the Lord comes alongside you. I just watched Cruella the other night. Have you watched Cruella? Have you watched it? She's the most humble person that ever. Are you kidding me? The whole time I'm watching this, like, I cannot believe how arrogant she is. I mean, the whole world revolves around her. And it's like, wow. That's, that's not a Christian. See, blessed are the meek. So if you are a meek, humble person who's being afflicted by the world around you because they're evil and they don't like the light, you can know for sure, even though you might be, not be able to see it, God is always working to bring down the wicked one day. I don't know about you, but that, that's kind of how I find joy each day. Because I know where this is all going, that one day he calls us home, and then one day he comes, and what a glorious day that's going to be, because he's always working. So what's your job in the meantime? And I have two minutes to develop this. What, we're actually going to finish early. What is your job? Last verse says what? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. You're supposed to praise the Lord. So as you leave and you think, i got to praise God for his, his character, who he is, and his compassion that he shows toward me, and as I see it in my life, well, I should just praise him. And to praise, halel means to take something and put it up higher than yourself, that God is higher than you. So halel, hallelujah, is to praise God higher than me and to adore him. That's a sweet aroma to him when he sees you do that. Hope you have a great day. Praise God for 20 degrees. Praise God for it's not snowing. I mean, whatever, but praise God for what he's doing in your life because despite what you see with evil, God's like, no, I totally got this. I'm at work. Why don't we stand? Okay. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Pray, praise God. Let's pray. God, uh, we got to get real and say sometimes we get weary, we get tired. Uh, it's hard to watch evil and sometimes we just pray for you to hurry up and show up. Uh, but in the meantime, might we not lose sight of the fact uh, that you are working uh, on all the intricacies of our life, of our world, to bring about the king and the kingdom. Uh, and in the meantime, we should be praising you uh, as points of light. And it's going to pulsate in any given day, but help us to just learn to pause and to give you praise when we see you doing great things and to give you thanks, even in the hard things. Might we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.